Welcome to Misty 101 podcast. We hope that you enjoy this episode of our podcast. Israeli defense officials cast doubt on threat to attack Iran. With diplomatic efforts to curb Iran's nuclear program teetering, Israel's defense minister has ordered his forces to prepare a military option, warning the world that Israel would take matters into its own hands if a new nuclear agreement did not sufficiently constrain Iran. But several current and former senior Israeli military officials and experts say that Israel lacks the ability to pull off an assault that could destroy, or even significantly delay, Iran's nuclear program, at least not any time soon. One current high-ranking security official said it would take at least two years to prepare an attack that could cause significant damage to Iran's nuclear project. A smaller-scale strike damaging parts of the program without ending it entirely, would be feasible sooner, experts and officials say. But a wider effort to destroy the dozens of nuclear sites in distant parts of Iran, the kind of attack Israeli officials have threatened, would be beyond the current resources of the Israeli armed forces. It's very difficult, I would say even impossible to launch a campaign that would take care of all these sites said Relic Schaefer, a retired Israeli Air Force general who was a pilot in a 1981 strike on an Iraqi nuclear facility. In the world we live in, the only Air Force that can maintain a campaign is the US Air Force he said. The recent discussion of a military attack on Iran is part of an Israeli pressure campaign to make sure that the countries negotiating with Iran in Vienna do not agree to what Israeli officials consider a bad deal one that in their view would not prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. At the moment, there appears to be little chance of that as the talks, aimed at resurrecting the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran have only regressed since Iran's new hardline government rejoined them last month. Until now, Israel has tried to curb Iran's nuclear program, which it considers an existential threat, through a combination of aggressive diplomacy and clandestine attacks. Israeli officials considered it a coup when they were able to persuade President Donald J. Trump to withdraw from the 2015 agreement which President Biden now wants to salvage. Israel has also waged a shadow war through espionage, targeted assassinations, sabotage and cyber-attacks, smaller-scale operations that it has never formally claimed. Israel secretly considered mounting full-scale airstrikes in 2012 before abandoning the plan. But as Iran's nuclear enrichment program approaches weapons-grade levels, Israeli politicians have warned in increasingly open fashion what the world has long assumed, that Israel could turn to open warfare if Iran was allowed to make progress toward developing a nuclear weapon, a goal Iran denies. In September, the head of the Israeli armed forces, Lieutenant General Aviv Karkavi, said large parts of a military budget increase had been allocated to preparing a strike on Iran. Early this month, The Mossad chief, David Barnier, said Israel would do whatever it takes to stop Iran from making a nuclear bomb. This month, during a visit to the United States, 
Defense Minister Benny Gantz publicly announced that he had ordered the Israeli army to prepare for a possible military strike on Iran. But Israeli experts and military officials say that Israel currently lacks the ability to deal Iran's nuclear program a knockout blow by air. Iran has dozens of nuclear sites, some deep underground that would be hard for Israeli bombs to quickly penetrate and destroy, Mr. Schaefer said. The Israeli Air Force does not have warplanes large enough to carry the latest bunker-busting bombs, so the more protected sites would have to be struck repeatedly with less effective missiles, a process that might take days or even weeks, Mr. Schaefer added. One current senior security official said Israel did not currently have the ability to inflict any significant damage to the underground facilities at Natanz and Fordow. Such an effort would be complicated by a shortage of refueling planes. The ability to refuel is crucial for a bomber that may have to travel more than 2,000 miles round trip, crossing over Arab countries that would not want to be a refueling stop for an Israeli strike. Israel has ordered eight new KC-46 tankers from Boeing at a cost of $2.4 billion but the aircraft are back-ordered and Israel is unlikely to receive even one before late 2024. Aside from the ability to hit the targets, Israel would have to simultaneously fend off Iranian fighter jets and air defense systems. Any attack on Iran would also likely set off retaliatory attacks from Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in Gaza, allies of Iran that would try to force Israel to fight a war on several fronts simultaneously. Iran's defense capabilities are also much stronger than in 2012, when Israel last seriously considered attacking. Its nuclear sites are better fortified and it has more surface-to-surface -surface missiles that can be launched swiftly from tunnels. It is very possible that when the Israeli planes try to land back in Israel, they will find that the Iranian missiles destroyed their runways said Tal Inbar, an aviation expert and former head of the Fisher Institute for Air and Space Strategic Studies, an aviation-focused research group. Other military experts, however, say that Israel could still take out the most important elements of the Iranian nuclear apparatus, even without newer aircraft and equipment. It's always good to replace a car from 1960 with a brand new car from 2022 said Amos Yardlin, a former Air Force general who also participated in the 1981 strike. But we have refueling capabilities. We have bunker busters. We have one of the best air forces in the world. We have very good intelligence on Iran. We can do it. Can the American Air Force can do it better? Definitely. They have a much more capable air force. But they don't have the will. He cautioned that he would only support a strike as a last resort. Israeli officials refuse to discuss the red lines Iran must cross to warrant a military strike. However, a senior defense official said that if Iran were to begin enriching uranium to 90% purity, weapons-grade fuel, Israel would be obliged to intensify its actions. American officials have said Iran is currently enriching uranium up to 60% purity. 
the fact that it could take years to ramp up a program to carry out a massive air campaign against Iran should come as no surprise to Israeli military officials. When Israel considered such an attack in 2012, the preparations for it had taken more than three years, Israeli officials said. But the distance between the current government's threats and its ability to carry them out has provoked criticism of the former Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who led Israel's government until last June and was a dogged advocate for a harsher approach to Iran. Since 2015, training for a strike on Iran had slowed, a senior Israeli military official said, as the defense establishment focused on confrontations with militias in Lebanon, Syria and Gaza. In 2017, the Israeli Air Force determined it needed to replace its refueling planes, but Mr Netanyahu's government did not order them until last March. And another senior military official said the army had asked Mr Netanyahu since 2019 for extra funds to improve Israel's ability to attack Iran, but was rebuffed. In a statement, Mr Netanyahu's office said the opposite was true, that it was Mr Netanyahu who pushed for more resources and energy on a strike on Iran while the military chiefs insisted on spending most of their budget on other issues and slowed down preparations to strike Iran. Were it not for the political, operational and budgetary actions led by Prime Minister Netanyahu over the past decade, Iran would have long had an arsenal of nuclear weapons the statement added. Whether or not Mr Netanyahu restricted the funding, experts have said that the money under discussion would not have significantly changed the army's ability to attack Iran. You can always improve, buying more refueling airplanes, newer ones, bigger loads of fuel Mr Schaefer said. But even with these improvements and a superior air force, he said, Israeli airstrikes would not end Iran's nuclear program. They would likely, however, set the region on fire. Iran looks to drag out talks in Vienna with Russia's backing, analysis. Iran thinks it is making progress at the Vienna talks as it works to get the US and others to relieve sanctions. Tehran thinks dragging out the talks, with Russia's backing, will enable it to get what it wants. The Biden administration seems annoyed at how Iran is conducting itself. Nevertheless, the Europeans and other Western powers see it as in their interest to keep going. Iran knows its adversaries want success in Vienna more than Iran needs one. Iranian Deputy Foreign Minister Ali Bagheri announced after recent meetings that this seventh round of talks had included two documents that will be the basis for future negotiations. Iran believes the talks will resume. It says one document relates to the lifting of sanctions on Tehran. The three European members of the negotiations in Vienna believe Iran is making more demands as time goes by, according to Iranian media. Tehran, meanwhile, says it is continuing to enrich uranium in violation of the 2015 deal and that it does this because the US left the deal and put sanctions on Iran. These are high-stakes games that Iran is playing. Tehran now plays up how Russia and Iran are cooperating.
Russia appears to be using Iran as a kind of blocking tackle against the West. This comes as Russia has also made demands on the West as the US accused it of massing troops on Ukraine's border. Bagheri, Iran's chief negotiator, has said, some actors insist on their habit of blaming instead of real diplomacy. Russia has implied that the next round of talks could be the final one. This apparently means something will come out of it. Iran's media has played up the Russian comments. Russia's permanent representative to Vienna also noted that Western participants in the negotiations seem to have a better understanding of how to pursue the right policy. According to Bagheri, the outcome of the talks to date has met the expectations of the Russian side, and the main result is that no one has tried to underline the results of the previous six rounds of negotiations and start from scratch Tasnim News in Iran said this weekend. Outraged Iranian pet owners kick back against new proposal to ban all pets. Iranian animal lovers have ridiculed a new law that could ban people from owning pets after the country's government floated legislation aimed at protecting the country from unclean animals. Citizens would be barred from owning, breeding and transporting dogs, cats and other common household pets under the proposed law or face fines equivalent to 10 or 30 times the minimum monthly working wage. Ultra-conservative lawmakers representing about 25% of Iran's parliamentarians have signed the bill, according to Emirati media outlet The National. Iran's government has become increasingly conservative since the election of hardliner Ibrahim Raisi, a close ally of the country's supreme leader, in August. Parliament approved the appointment of 18 of Reyes's 19-member roster of ministers, many of whom come from former hardline administrations and are sanctioned by the United States. The group of conservatives are reportedly backing the ban as they consider keeping pets decadent or unclean, as dogs and pigs are considered under Islamic law. In the bill's introduction, its authors condemn the practice of humans living under a single roof with domesticated animals as a destructive social problem. They claim pet ownership could gradually change the Iranian and Islamic way of life and fear it would swap human and family relationships with feelings and emotional relationships towards animals. The legislation would prevent importing, raising, assisting in the breeding of, breeding, buying or selling transporting, driving or walking, and keeping in the home wild, exotic, harmful and dangerous animals, but it does not strictly cover animals typically considered to be a threat. Animals listed in the ban include turtles, snakes and lizards, as well as common pets including rabbits and dogs. How many times have cats sought to devour you so that you consider them wild, harmful and dangerous? Journalist Jürgen Kudemi joked on Twitter. Another user posted a photograph of his kitten alongside the caption, I have renamed my cat criminal since I heard this proposed law. Solving the country's problems is tied to killing people's cats and dogs. Abdullah Ramazanzaid, a reformist politician, tweeted. Offenders could face fines of up to £2,900 and confiscation of the animal, as well as any vehicle used to transport it.
Landlords who allow their tenants to keep pets would be hit with the same penalty and law enforcement would be obliged to investigate any accused of violations. Conservative lawmaker Nusser Mousavi Lagani told local media that animals have caused panic for children and families in residential areas. Mr Lagani said keeping pets also brings about several infections and diseases common between humans and animals. Iran's Society of Veterinarians warned that the bill could result in uncontrollable social repercussions. The bill's text as it is written is anti-animalist and far from the customary and religious laws common between humans and other creatures of God Almighty a statement from the society said. Dog ownership has been a contentious issue in Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution with many conservatives viewing it as a sign of Western influence. There have been attempts to ban dogs entirely, but so far none have been successful. This summer city authorities in Tehran banned dogs from city parks and streets following pressure from hardliners. Police announced in July that they would crack down on uncaged dogs in vehicles, claiming they pose a distraction to drivers. Society should try to establish an Islamic way of life Mohammed Hossein Hamidi, the chief of the capital's traffic police, said at the time. It remains unclear whether the legislation will be passed into law. In light of the backlash, few parliamentarians are actually willing to defend it, according to reports. The head of the Iranian parliament's judicial commission, Musa Ghazan Farabadi, who signed the text, said, I agree with the project in general, but I certainly disagree with some of its clauses. He added, it is just a bill, but whether it succeeds is another matter. Baby gets adult dose of COVID-19 vaccine instead of flu shot. A South Korean doctor has reportedly been sued after giving a seven-month-old infant an adult COVID-19 vaccine rather than the age-appropriate flu shot that the child was meant to receive. The incident occurred on 29 September in Seongnam, just south of Seoul, South Korea's Yonap News Agency reported on Saturday, citing the municipal government. The unidentified doctor gave the baby a dose of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, which had been set aside for the child's mother. South Korea's government limits use of the Moderna vaccine to people 18 and older. It's also reviewing whether it should follow the lead of other countries in further restricting use of the shot, citing concerns over side effects. For instance, Japanese health officials have called for men under 30 to be inoculated with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Sweden, Finland Denmark and Norway also suspended the use of the vaccine for younger age groups. The Siangnam infant was taken to a nearby hospital and kept under observation for five days. Officials said the child showed no special signs of side effects according to Yonap. However, the baby's parents have reportedly sued the doctor, demanding compensation for the mix-up. Pfizer has tested its COVID-19 vaccine in babies as young as six months old, but doses are much smaller than those given to adults. The shot has been authorized for use in U.S. children as young as five years old. 
Children 5 to 11 are given two doses of 10 micrograms each, one-third the amount injected into teenagers and adults. Weatherspoons accuses customers of pretending to be hit by debris after pub ceiling collapses. Customers pretended to have been struck by debris in a J.D. Weatherspoon pub after parts of the ceiling collapsed during storm air when, a spokesperson for the chain has said. Staff were forced to call the emergency services and evacuate drinkers from the premises when chunks of plaster fell from the ceiling of the North and South Wales Bank pub in Wrexham just before 10.30pm on Friday. No customers or staff were injured although two customers pretended they had been hit but when confronted by the police and Weatherspoon's staff looking at CCTV it showed clearly that no customers were struck by any debris the spokesperson told North Wales Live. The Welsh Ambulance Service said that it had received reports of two potentially injured people at the pub and that a rapid response vehicle was called to the scene, according to the outlet but the two individuals had left the premises by the time that paramedics arrived, the ambulance service said. The Independent has contacted North Wales Police for more details of its response to the incident. The pub will be closed until further notice and a structural engineer, builder and architect will attend to assess the damage, the Weatherspoons spokesperson said. In the meantime, the pub staff will be deployed to the other Weatherspoons pub in Wrexham, the Elihu Yale, they added. It is unclear whether the damage was related in any way to Storm Erwin, for which the Met Office issued a rare red weather warning along parts of the east coast on Friday night and an amber warning for wind in western Wales on Saturday morning. US wins court bid to overturn block on Julian Assange extradition. The U.S. government has won its bid to overturn a judge's decision not to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Assange, 50, is wanted in America over an alleged conspiracy to obtain and disclose national defense information following WikiLeaks' publication of hundreds of thousands of leaked documents relating to the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. U.S. authorities brought a high court challenge against a January ruling by then-District Judge Vanessa Baratza that Assange should not be sent to the U.S., in which she cited a real and oppressive risk of suicide. After a two-day hearing in October, the Lord Chief Justice Lord Burnett, sitting with Lord Justice Holroyd, ruled in favor of the U.S. on Friday. The senior judges found that the judge had based her decision on the risk of Assange being held in highly restrictive prison conditions if extradited. However, the U.S. authorities later gave assurances that Assange would not face those strictest measures either pre-trial or post-conviction unless he committed an act in the future that required them. Lord Burnett said, that risk is in our judgment excluded by the assurances which are offered. It follows that we are satisfied that, if the assurances had been before the judge, she would have answered the relevant question differently. He added, that conclusion is sufficient to determine this appeal in the USA's favor. It is expected that Assange will attempt to bring an appeal over this latest decision. The High Court was previously told that blocking Assange's removal due to his mental health risks rewarding fugitives for their flight. James Lewis QC, 
for the U.S., said the district judge based her decision on Assange's intellectual ability to circumvent suicide preventative measures, which risked becoming a trump card for anyone who wanted to oppose their extradition regardless of any resources the other state might have. Mr. Lewis said that the four binding diplomatic assurances made were a solemn matter and are not dished out like smarties. These included that Assange would not be submitted to special administrative measures, SAMs, and detained at the ADX Florence Supermax jail if extradited and that the US would consent to Assange being transferred to Australia to serve any prison sentence he may be given. The U.S. authorities also argued Assange is well enough to be extradited, with Mr. Lewis telling the court his mental illness does not even come close to being severe enough to prevent being sent overseas. But lawyers representing Assange, who opposed the US bid to overturn the extradition bloc, had argued that the assurances over the WikiLeaks founders' potential treatment were meaningless and vague. Edward Fitzgerald QC said the judge had produced a carefully considered and fully reasoned judgment, adding it was clear she had scrupulously applied the test for oppression in cases of mental disorder. Mr Fitzgerald later said that assurances not to impose sums on Assange or hold him at the ADX Florence Supermax jail pre-trial or post-conviction do not remove the risk of conditions of administrative isolation. The court also heard that Assange had faced a menacing, threatening and frightening situation while under surveillance when he lived at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Mr Fitzgerald argued in written submissions that claims of extreme measures of surveillance, alongside subsequent recent disclosures about CIA plans from the same period in time to seriously harm Julian Assange justified earlier concerns for the safety and privacy of his partner Stella Morris. Assange has been held in Belmarsh Prison since 2019 after he was carried out of the Ecuadorian embassy by police before being arrested for breaching his bail conditions. He had entered the building in 2012 to avoid extradition to Sweden to face sex offence allegations, which he has always denied and were eventually dropped. This morning fans devastated as Holly and Phil say goodbye in final show. This morning viewers were left wiping away the tears as Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield hosted their final show before Christmas Day. The presenters hosted a rare Friday show today as they took over from Alison Hammond and Dermot O'Leary for their final appearance on the ITV show before breaking up for Christmas. Holly, 40 looked very festive in a high-neck crimson silk velvet mini-dress paired with matching scarlet lipstick. The presenter added a bit of glitz with a pair of black heels decorated with a jeweled buckle. Posing on Instagram, Holly shared a picture of her festive outfit as she wrote, It's Krithrithrismaras. Final day on at this morning until Christmas Day. Just moments before she appeared on the show, Holly suffered a bit of a blunder with her nails as one of them fell off. She then accidentally had her nail glued to her makeup artist's hand. It comes after it was revealed that there would be a schedule shake-up on today's show. Phil revealed the shake-up during the Dear Deidre phone-in on Wednesday as he told viewers he had Holly would be hosting a festive phone-in. 
The 59-year-old said, a quick word about Friday's show, which we're doing. He's in high demand at this time of year but Father Christmas will be taking a break from his busy schedule to answer your children's questions. Holly added, so whether they are wondering if Rudolph really is his favorite reindeer, or whether he prefers mince pies or cookies by the chimney. It's their chance to speak to the actual Santa. Holly and Phil usually present the show Monday to Thursday during term time. Dermot, 48, and Alison, 46, took over the Friday show from former hosts Amon Holmes, 62, and Ruth Langsford, 61, at the start of the year. Amon and Ruth returned to present the show throughout the summer holidays but their future is unclear after the Northern Irish presenter reportedly signed a contract with GB News. Donald Trump launches tirade at former ally Benjamin Netanyahu. Donald Trump has launched a foul-mouthed tirade against one of his closest allies, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, accusing him of disloyalty after the U.S. election. In an interview with Barack Ravid, a high-profile Israeli journalist, the former president fumed that Mr. Netanyahu congratulated Joe Biden for winning the election, which Mr. Trump had baselessly claimed was rigged. He was very early, in sending congratulations. Like earlier than most. I haven't spoken to him since. F asterisk 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 him Mr. Trump said in the interview. Mr. Netanyahu had in fact been slower to congratulate Mr. Biden than other world leaders on his election victory, which had raised speculation in Israel that he might support Mr. Trump's attempts to undermine the election result. Nobody did more for Bibi. And I liked Bibi. I still like Bibi added Mr. Trump, referring to the former Israeli leader's nickname. He was the man that I did more for than any other person I dealt with. But I also like loyalty. The first person to congratulate Biden was Bibi. And not only did he congratulate him, he did it on tape. The bitter tirade appeared to end Mr. Trump's most effusive friendship with a foreign leader during his presidency from 2017 to 2020. Mr. Netanyahu once claimed that Mr. Trump was the greatest friend the state of Israel had ever had in the White House. During their leadership, the two populist politicians secured an historic normalization treaty between Israel and several Arab states, including the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. The Trump administration also recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moved its embassy there from Tel Aviv upending decades of U.S. foreign policy. The move delighted Israeli government officials who welcomed Mr. Trump's openly partisan stance on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mr. Trump had also taken a substantially tougher stance than his predecessors on Iran, Israel's arch-nemesis, withdrawing from the Obama-era nuclear accord. Both leaders have since been removed from power in elections but are said to be plotting political comebacks, even as Mr. Netanyahu stands trial on a series of corruption charges. Asked in the same interview whether he would seek a second term in 2024, Mr. Trump said, 
We'll see, maybe I will have a second term. We'll see what happens. I am not making any plans. This morning's Holly Willoughby addresses rumors she's leaving ITV show. Holly Willoughby has insisted that she is not retiring from this morning as she addressed hurtful rumors that she is leaving the ITV chat show. The presenter, 40, said she feels very lucky to be on the award-winning show and working with her co-host Philip Schofield. Discussing retirement with all the guests on Saturday's pre-recorded episode of The Jonathan Ross Show, Holly addressed rumors that are reported about her leaving this morning. She said, I never think like that. I feel very lucky to be on that show. The show changes so much, I think that's the beauty of this morning. Recently it's had the highest ratings it's had in 15 years. It's doing really, really well which is extraordinary for a show that's been around for as long as it has. And I think because it changes and it evolves and it adapts. But I think that show has something to teach us a little bit, as long as we keep evolving and changing and moving on and happy to flow with things. Holly continued, I'm very lucky to work with Phil. I can't imagine a world without him being there. It just wouldn't be the same. The magic of that show is us two together when we're together. Fridays are different, Dermot and Alison have their own unique magic. Co-hosts like that don't come along very often. So when they do you have to hold tight. Holly added of her co-host Philip, 59, I do really love him. I really love him. We're lucky, we really are. I've read those things, too. It hurts sometimes, because it's so unfair and untrue, so it's difficult sometimes. We're just incredibly lucky. Addressing the leaving rumors once and for all, Holly insisted, so no, I'm not retiring, that's a really long answer. Holly is joined by guests Usain Bolt, Joanna Lumley, Jamie Dornan, Shalom Brune Franklin and Damon Alban during the episode. Ukraine responds to Russian claims about Kerch incident. The Ukrainian Navy ship Donbass did not enter restricted waters in the Kerch Strait and accusations that it was a threat to navigation safety are fake Ukraine's joint forces operations said on Thursday night. The statement came after Russia's Federal Security Service accused the vessel of heading in the direction of the Russian-controlled Kerch-Yenikalsky Canal that divides the Black Sea from the Sea of Azov. According to the law, permission must be obtained for any ship using the passage. The Ukraine boat eventually turned around and headed back to its base at the port city of Maripol without passing through the Kerch Strait waters. Regarding the fake statements of the FSB, the press service of JFO reports that the Ukrainian naval ship Donbas did not enter sensitive areas the Kiev-based government agency reported, noting that it remained within the country's territorial waters. The Kerch Strait came under the control of Moscow in 2014, when Crimea was reabsorbed into Russia, following a referendum. The vote took place a month after the events of the Maidan, when violent street protests toppled Kiev's democratically elected government. 
Ukraine considers the referendum illegitimate and views the peninsula as illegally occupied by Moscow. Prior to 2014, the strait was treated as shared internal waters by both Russia and Ukraine, but is now under the complete control of Moscow. The boat at the center of Thursday's incident was the Donbass, a former Soviet auxiliary vessel that was later converted by the Ukrainian Navy into a command ship. In 2014, it was captured by Russia, when a number of Ukrainian forces stationed in Crimea defected to Moscow. It was later returned. The ship's journey towards the Kerch Strait came at a time of heightened tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Western officials and the media have accused Moscow of amassing troops on its border, suggesting that the Kremlin seeks to launch an invasion of its neighbor. Russia has repeatedly denied these accusations. Iran takes aim at US and UK over Beijing boycott. The spokesman for the Iranian foreign ministry has vowed solidarity with China and accused the US of leading a smear campaign after the White House confirmed a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. Whether it's diplomatic boycott of hash Beijing 22, or depriving Iranian teams from accessing financial resources, everyone should denounce politicization of sport tweeted Iranian Foreign Ministry Saeed Katabzade on Thursday. Looking forward to participation in the event, we express solidarity with China that is targeted by smear campaign. Katabzade shared an image of a tweet from U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi in which she applauded Joe Biden's decision not to send U.S. diplomats to the games in Beijing, which get underway in February. China has dismissed the boycotts as a farce, with Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin saying, sports has nothing to do with politics. It is they who have written, directed and performed this farce. As of now, numerous heads of state, leaders of government and royal family members have registered to attend the Beijing Winter Olympics, and we welcome them. China is committed to making greater contributions to the international Olympic cause and will offer up a streamlined, safe and exciting Olympics to the world. The boycotts are ostensibly over China's human rights record although some including figures in Russia have accused the US and its allies of pursuing a political agenda against China. IKEA suggests what Merkel can do after leaving politics. The era of Angela Merkel's rule is over and it's apparently high time the former chancellor decided what to do with her spare time. And German firms came up with a few suggestions. Several German companies, including a local IKEA branch, decided to pay tribute to the former German government head in a fairly unusual way as they featured her image in their latest ads. IKEA congratulated Merkel on being finally home as it ran an ad featuring her look-alike sitting in a comfy armchair in a plainly furnished room. The company apparently did not believe she would completely forget about politics after 16 years of chancellorship since a caption to the ad on social media read. Could you please pass me the opera glasses, I would like to see if Olaf is already busy. The pun was a reference to Olaf Scholz Merkel's successor at the Chancellor's office. A hardware store, Tomb, 
suggested Merkel would find her new calling in gardening as it posted an ad featuring Merkel making an iconic hand gesture known as Merkel's rhombus or diamond while wearing the company's gloves. For all those who finally have time for a garden the ad's caption read. Toom could also not help but remind its clients to treat politics seriously since the ad also featured another caption reading, first go to vote and then off to the garden. It is unclear if Merkel is a passionate gardener but she does love nature. After all, she is known to be passionate about hiking on vacation. Germany's Astra beer brand suggested the former chancellor might find a better use for her iconic diamond gesture now that she does not have to pose in front of photographers during official events. The company placed a bottle of its Astra Ertip beer into the ex-chancellor's hands and wished that everyone have a nice evening. Merkel is yet to comment on the ads, so it is unclear if she will follow any of this advice. Earlier when asked about what she would do after leaving the Chancellor's office, she said she would find herself a good book and take a nap. And then we'll see she added. Nation that has hundreds of overseas military bases says China isn't allowed one. An oil-rich Gulf state, traditionally a US client state, has tilted towards Beijing, demonstrating that, to America's displeasure, it's now increasingly a multipolar world. A week or so ago, the United States leaked accusations to the media that China was building a secret military facility in the United Arab Emirates, which they had put a stop to. How China managed to pursue what is described as a multi-story building in a country that was not their own without being detected, beggars belief, yet the media reported it as fact anyway. There has been a spree of similar stories of late, accusing Beijing of building undisclosed or secret military facilities, including one in Cambodia and another in Equatorial Guinea. The nation that has hundreds of overseas military bases worldwide believes that Beijing isn't entitled to a single one. Besides that, and on the UAE matter, this adds to a broader pattern where Washington appears to be intent on undermining China's relationship with the wealthy oil monarchy, which sits on a corner of the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Gulf. It's a state that has been an important strategic partner of the US for many years, but nonetheless is increasingly warm towards Beijing, putting it in a tight position as the new Cold War hots up. The Biden administration had previously leveraged a sale of F-35s to the country on the proviso that the UAE remove China's Huawei from its 5G network, a demand which does not appear to have yet worked. Why is the UAE so strategically important? Formerly a British protectorate which came into existence in the 1970s, the new state secured its political survival and prosperity through a patron-client relationship with the West. In exchange for backing Western political objectives in the Middle East, as well as providing an abundant supply of oil, the US and its allies would provide political security for the small Emirati state against those adversarial towards it, such as Iran or Saddam Hussein's Iraq. As a result, the UAE has literally served as a military launch pad into the region as part of a Saudi-led, pro-US order in the Middle East. 
It hosts air bases for the US and France. It buys weapons from the US military industrial complex, and at America's insistence, normalized ties with Israel in 2020 as part of the Abraham Accords. The UAE has become known for its displays of immense wealth and grandeur, such as the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, all built on the back of its oil wealth and its security relationship with Washington, London, and Paris. But the world is changing. As the world moves slowly towards electric vehicles and renewable energy, oil is not going to be an infinite source of wealth for the Gulf monarchies. This has forced them to consider long-term strategies of economic diversification and to develop revenues from other areas. As we've seen recently in its remodeling of the Arab world's traditional working week, the UAE has long been pursuing an effort to develop itself into a tourist and retail-focused economy and to become a crossroads of the world. But to do so, Abu Dhabi has placed a considerable part of its strategy on turning east building a strong relationship beyond its traditional patrons, with China and India. Despite the move to diversify from crude exports, the UAE's current economic incentives and Look East strategy are underlined by the fact that it already sells more energy to China than it does to the US, undercutting Washington's traditional leverage. In addition, the Emirates are also part of the Belt and Road Initiative have considerable investments in, and increased trade with China, and are huge enthusiasts for Huawei. They relied on China as their first port of call for vaccines, and have frequently supported Beijing's position on Xinjiang. From a strategic point of view, Emirati leaders believe there are long-term political interests and safeguards in developing ties with another authoritarian state which is not dependent on the West. Across the board, this means a noticeable tilt towards China. This increasingly cozy relationship is beginning to cross America's red lines. The UAE occupies a strategic position next to the Gulf of Oman, which leads into the Indian Ocean, meaning its political allegiances are of consequence to Washington's bid to dominate the Indo-Pacific against China. The UAE has also been shying away from its traditional arms suppliers too, finding an appetite, for example, in China and Russia's drones. These developments have made the US anxious that its sway over what has been its long-standing regional client is wavering, and this has started the pushback against China's role there. This has included, as noted above, the attempt to try and leverage the sale of F-35S to the UAE in exchange for removing Huawei, a deal which remains unconcluded, and now the accusation that Beijing has been attempting to build a military facility in the country completely unnoticed. However, what Washington is underestimating is that a state like the UAE no longer seems willing to continue with just one strategic client relationship. It wants to find political space for itself, with as many partners as can benefit it, and that includes variety within the West itself. Hence, amid the F-35 controversy, President Macron of France swept into the country last week and sealed a deal for the UAE to buy more than 80 Rafale jets. 
The deal was motivated by Macron's own revenge for the AUKUS controversy, in which the US forced Australia to abruptly cancel a deal with France in order to buy its nuclear submarines instead. Abu Dhabi later denied that the deal was to replace the American F-35S, but the message to Washington was obvious. In the same week, the UAE then sent a top official to Iran for talks, heaping more bad news on the US. Both stories serve to show Washington's hand over the country is weakening. The US is seeking to drive China out of the UAE, but it's unlikely to work. Washington has frequently sought to exert coercion over its allies and partners to force them into line on China-related matters, mostly by stressing security dependencies. In Europe, this has normally worked and the assumption has been that the UAE, long dependent on American goodwill, would fall in line too. However, the Arab monarchy is a partner motivated primarily by its own raw interests, not shared values, and has gradually shifted its focus within an ever-changing geopolitical context. It perceives China, as other countries do, as an increasingly important partner in political and economic matters. Even if China cannot replicate America's military importance to the UAE, it is quite evident on multiple fronts that Washington will have a hard time getting Beijing's foothold out of the country. The UAE isn't a Western democracy. The US can't use the human rights card, the freedom versus authoritarian stance, and the manipulation of civil society, to propagate its agenda as it has elsewhere. It would need to convince Abu Dhabi that China is a physical threat to their national sovereignty and security, and that isn't a convincing sell, that's why you get silly stories such as this one about secret military bases. Ultimately, Abu Dhabi wants regime security and economic diversification, and while Washington has been important to these goals so far, the Emirates will turn to whoever provides it, be it France or China. Welcome, Washington, to a multipolar world. We hope that you have enjoyed our podcast. We thank you for your support. We wish all our followers a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. We hope to see you again next time.